I feel like I'm playing Tetris a little bit with my time and resources. Everything I've done to prepare for these Olympics, every minute of every workout has some kind of purpose. I start my first workout between 5 and 5.30. Trying to warm up, and that lasts usually around an hour to an hour and a half. Another hour, at least, supportive activity. A runner or bike usually lasts about two hours. Lifting, throwing, that lasts another two hours or so. Now for my midday workout, about three to four hours. And that includes warming up doing a really hard set and cooling down. When he said three hours, it's, it's definitely more than three hours and little dumb things that take a lot of time. My heaviest day is about seven, so it takes up a lot of my time and it's almost a full-time job. You want to spend between 25 and 30 hours and there's not enough time in the day. Everything is just geared towards getting better so that it all fits together. There's an event that all Olympians compete in, whether they're hammer throwers, swimmers, or volleyball players. It's the time juggle. From when the old Olympic flame is extinguished to when it's lit again four years later, athletes have to train, attend camps, lift weights, do cardio, meet with nutritionists, stretch, cool down, and hopefully sleep. They also have to pay for it. Debbie Phelps is always there for her son, Michael, with his favorite flavor-packed, fully-jacked foot-long subs. Only one? For every Michael Phelps whose Olympic fame earns lucrative endorsements, there are countless Olympians who struggle to make ends meet. A job becomes one more thing they have to fit into a breakneck training schedule. Welcome to The Narrative, a sports podcast that dives deep into the stories behind the box scores. I'm Harry Swarda. To us, Olympians are athletes that visit our TV screens for a few weeks every four years. But their identity goes beyond the Olympic venues. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Donna Vitalis. I answer that question differently depending on who I'm talking to um, because sometimes I'm, I'm a PhD student at the University of Toronto. Sometimes I'm an athlete. Donna Vicalis is going to the 2016 Rio Olympic Games to compete in modern pentathlon and studying to get her PhD in green architecture and city planning at the University of Toronto. But she certainly isn't the first person to claim Olympian as their side gig. Beginning in 1896, the International Olympic Games had represented the pitting of individual athletes against one another for top honors in the designated sporting events. Originally, the Olympics were completely amateur by rule. Sporting giants like turn-of-the-century football and track star Jim Thorpe were barred from competing or stripped of their medals after the fact. Training for an Olympic event was akin to cheating and set up a de facto barrier between the lower class and the games. Only those who did not have to work to support themselves were able to practice enough to qualify. Throughout the 1970s, professionals were finally phased into the games, but athletes still have large economic barriers to overcome. The first thing of the day is fencing. We are at the fencing hall. This is what fencing sounds like. The ringing of the epes may as well be the ringing of a cash register. Sports like fencing require special equipment, spaces, technology, and teachers. And that's only on the field. It consumes a lot of resources, like your energy. It takes money as well because you have to, you know, you have to pay your coaches. You have to pay for 
Um, if you're going to the physiotherapist, that costs money. Everything, you know, if you're, you know, you want to be eating really well, and so you're usually paying a little extra to eat more and to eat better. Then multiply those costs by five. As the name pentathlon implies, the modern pentathlon consists of five sports. Fencing, 200-meter freestyle swimming, show jumping, and a final combined event of pistol shooting and a 3,200-meter cross-country run. Pistols and horses don't come cheap. Sacrifices need to be made. So I just, I went deeply into debt, and that was my choice, and I, because I think it's totally worth it, and because I was able to do it, and I think, yeah, it's a hard balancing act, because you need to make it work somehow. I know that not everyone uh, has that choice, but I, I found that just going into debt and figuring that that's how I'm going to be an athlete for now, and I'll make it back somehow afterwards, that's kind of been my approach. It's almost like I'm putting my retirement funds into myself now, and this is my, yeah, this is my time to, to sort of um, to do that. Going into debt isn't the only way to pay for the Olympics. But if athletes are hoping to get some help from Uncle Sam, they better think again. So we are the only country in the world, sorry, the only first world country, that the government does not support our Olympians and our Paralympians. I do get a small stipend monthly based off of my performance level from USA Triathlon, but that small stipend would not even cover even a quarter of my expenses. So it does still require that I have a second job. That's Alyssa Seely, a Paralympic triathlete for the US. Without government aid, many athletes look for endorsements or sponsorship. In the 90s, Home Depot started a program to give part-time jobs to Olympic athletes, but shut the program down in 2009. For six years, there wasn't an official program to help Olympic athletes find jobs. So if you want to give up everything for the chance to have that medal hung around your neck, then we've got your back. Because you're the athletes we should be looking up to. And that's why we're honored to have you working with us. Dick's Sporting Goods picked up the mantle in 2015. Their Contenders program offers jobs to 200 Team USA hopefuls across 36 Olympic and Paralympic sports, doing something they're well-suited for, giving sports equipment advice. Here's Ryan Eckel, VP of Brand Marketing at Dick's Sporting Goods. I really applaud what Home Depot did. I think it really started something really special. But I think the, the difference that we offer is that these athletes have our customers buy their sporting gear and help them with their questions about sports, being recognized and, and, and sort of validated as athletes when they're working. Along with the validation comes an in income. And just as importantly for the athletes, the ability to take their time to train and travel while still holding a job. So I do have a job that I work so that I'm able to keep a roof over my head and pay my bills and cover training expenses and all of that. So I work part-time for Dick's Sporting Goods. They help us out by offering not only competitive wages, but they also are very flexible with our, our work time so that we're able to focus on our training first and foremost, um, able to get time off whenever we need to travel for events, training camps, uh, competitions, stuff like that, but allow us to work and make an income for ourselves.
Paralympians often need this type of support even more than their Olympic counterparts. They are less likely to earn endorsement deals and can accrue expenses that go beyond Olympic training. You know, we have all the same expenses able-bodied Olympians have, the coaches, the training, the nutrition, the travel, all of that. Um, but on top of that, have, having a progressive medical condition and prosthetics, I do have to spend a significant amount of my income on medical expenses, um, making sure I have my legs are working, anytime I need a new leg or anything like that. Those are all expenses that add up, as well as, you know, my all of my everyday medications, doctor's appointments, all of that, which I have probably much more of than any of the able-bodied Olympians. And so that's definitely a significant added cost for me. What the Contenders program doesn't necessarily do is allow athletes to gain experience in their field of interest. When the torch goes out, Olympians can be left with a gaping hole in their resume. I know I'm gonna continue competing through 2017. I may go for 2020, but after I retire from athletics, I would really like to go back to working in the medical field. I previously worked at a children's hospital and I really enjoyed the work I did. Um, so that's really kind of my goal is to go back and finish school and then hopefully start working with kids. Um, I'd also love to be able to coach and inspire the next generation of athletes. Um, but, you know, right now that's kind of all up in the air and I'll see, you know, as the, as the world spins, we'll see where I end up. For now, having a roof overhead and food on the table is enough. But the Contenders program can only cover so many athletes. The athletes apply through, through the U.S. Olympic Committee. The U.S. Olympic Committee has basically identified athletes who have a high potential making Team USA. And if you're part of the USOC program, uh, you have the ability to apply to our program. And once you apply to our program, essentially, if you want a job, we're, we're, we're happy to find one for you. Getting a recommendation from the USOC isn't easy either. Underdogs and those who haven't been able to compete for whatever reason have few choices. Some athletes get creative with their budgets in order to keep training. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I mean, people live with their parents. They couch surf, living on friends' couches, on floors. Um, you know, I've even heard of people going as far as staying in their car so that they can afford their coaches, their nutrition and everything else and focus solely on training. It's really working, keeping that tail up higher. Keep it up. And keep moving into a block nice and smooth. Better. How did that feel? Oh, good. Good. Sam Krauser is one of the Olympians who lives with his parents in order to train full-time. And it just so happens that his father, Dean, is also his coach. You could say they're a javelin family. Yeah, uh, I got into it. Uh, my dad was a javelin thrower in the 1950s. And, you know, my brother Brian, uh, gosh, had, was the best javelin thrower in the country. I was the best javelin thrower in the country. And so track has just kind of been in our family. I have been throwing javelin and just throwing the discus or shot put since I can remember. I have this little picture, have a picture of me and it's a little wooden javelin that my dad made me and I was about two or three years old and I was throwing out in the yard and then, yeah, ever since then, it's just, uh, I've, I've always loved doing it and yeah, it's just, uh, that's how I got into it was my dad and all my uncles. Graduating from toy javelins to the real deal, Sam was a throwing dynamo in high school, competing on a national level. All these people came 
When he went to college, Sam was met with the same kind of competitive resources as his father. I was under the umbrella of the University of Oregon and our college program is incredible. That is our program in the United States. You go to college, it's fantastic. Coaches, everything, <laughs> facilities, medical, food, room and board. And then after you're done, and that's what Sam's experiencing now, is it's like falling off a cliff <laughs> as far as the support of any kind. After college, Sam didn't emerge into the same Olympic landscape as his father. Prices have gone up for everything from javelins to medical treatment. You know, if you just have an average apartment and food and you're living a very, very, very basic lifestyle with utilities, we'll say that would be $1,500 a month, which is $18,000 a year for a guy if you were to live in an apartment. We just bought a javelin the other day. They're $1,300. We have probably 12 of those. Uh, Sam's PRP treatment for his knee, it's a PRP injection, which is state-of-the-art. We probably spent $4,000 on medical travel. We're flying him down to the training center and back or to any meets he wants to go. Equipment, it just, it's thousands and thousands of dollars. To like where... 30000 probably. I've been lucky enough just individually that I've been supported for at least this year by my parents. I'm able to live with them and they've supported me, but uh, if you're actually going to support yourself and be living on your own, that costs money, and to do that, you have to have a job, and a job takes a lot of time, but the time, you know, is spent that you need to be training, so it's just a real double-edged sword with people after college where they don't have the funding, and they don't have the time. Yeah, I mean, you can't have a normal job and make this thing work without some financial help, and obviously, we're gonna help Sam, and it just makes it so difficult to withstand the punishment, if you will, to get to that point. It's almost impossible. And the punishment may go on for quite some time. When I interviewed Sam, he had yet to qualify for the Olympics. Qualification is different for different sports, but in javelin, a thrower needs to make the finals in the Olympic qualifiers and also make an Olympic A qualifying distance throw. It can get confusing even for the competitors. The Olympic qualifying starts on, I believe, May 1st, and you have up till June 26th of the next year, so it's 83 meters is the Olympic A qualifying. And that allows you to go to the Olympics if you can finish, I believe, I believe in the finals. The beauty of the Olympic A is what happened to Sam in 2012. He threw a life best at the Olympic trials. And in past years, they take the top one, two, and three athletes in each event. Sam uh, got second, but was just a couple of feet behind the Olympic A. So in any other year, he would have gone, but he was left at home. On July 4th, with the Olympic A qualifying distance under his belt, Sam fell just shy of the top three, finishing fourth at the Olympic trials. But he'll represent the US in Rio just the same. Just as Sam had been left out of London for missing the qualifying distance, the second and third place finishers at this Olympic trials did not have a long enough throw and were left off the roster. In fact, the third American going to Rio placed 11th at the Olympic trials. Essentially, an Olympic hopeful can be sure they're going to the games, only to find out a month in advance, they're staying home. Next year, if I was to move out on my own, 
and can't afford to do that kind of stuff, that makes it even easier to just stop throwing or stop competing because you just can't afford to. All this is to say that Olympians make huge sacrifices in order to carry the flag and compete for their country. They'll tell you it's all worth it. It's for the love of the game. If I make the Olympics and become an Olympian, I'm just a regular guy that I've been working hard and I'm not, you know, making any money at this. It's just a love. I have this love to, you know, and a passion that I've been working my whole life towards. It's more than a medal. It's more than a title. It's really a, a way of life and a culture. I love doing pentathlon, and when I'm in it, I, I always want to do more of it. I feel like that about swimming and running and shooting and fencing. And when you really sink into something, you know, you just want to sink your teeth in deeper. It's totally worth it. Olympians willingly make a multitude of sacrifices striving for greatness. Foregoing junk food, skipping on nights out with friends, getting up early day after day. But one thing they should not have to sacrifice is their livelihood. Whether it's government assistance, greater corporate sponsorship, or simply more understanding employers, America needs to realize that the Olympians don't disappear when the flame goes out on TV. They stand off screen, training, carrying a torch. Special thanks for this week's episode goes out to Donna Vicalis, Sam and Dean Krauser, Alyssa Seely, Ryan Eckel and Dick Sporting Goods, and the USOC. If you want to help Donna Vicalis on her way to the games, you can go to maxletics.com slash org slash push to Rio and donate to her cause. Thanks to Alex Abnos for recording the Tetris theme for this week's opening. If you like the show, please leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast feed. Tweet about the show using the hashtag SINarrative. I'm at Harry Swartout on Twitter. For more on the Rio Olympics and the narratives in the world of sports, head to SI.com. <laughs>